Welcome to the Witnessing History Education Foundation podcast, educating Americans to understand the history of their country and of other countries so that they will appreciate the value of America's unique, free institutions. Become an American hero who participates in our mission by joining us at witnessinghistory.org. Download our documentaries and free teacher education materials that conform to grade-level education standards at pbslearning.org. Follow Witnessing History on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Today, we are speaking with Kent Masterson-Brown, the president of the Witnessing History Education Foundation, about our latest documentary called In the Declaration All Men Are Created Equal. Abraham Lincoln in Illinois, 1830-1860. This period in the life of the 16th president shows his development from what he described himself as being a piece of floating driftwood to becoming an accomplished lawyer, legislator, and presidential candidate. And now, let Kent Masterson-Brown take you on a journey through American history. Welcome, Ken. <laughs> Tell us, what is so important about this period of Lincoln's life? Well, first of all, thank you. It's great being here. Um, what, what makes this so important is, frankly, what you just described. Here he is at age 22, appearing in New Salem, a village in central Illinois, just north of Springfield. And there he had just come back from a long journey down the Mississippi River with a man named Denton Offit and delivering cargo to New Orleans. And he journeyed all the way back home. Now, he had had not more than one year worth of formal education in his entire life. And so he described himself then as a piece of floating driftwood. And that's what he was. Yet, from that moment in 1831, when he appeared in New Salem, until May 1860, he would become, over those years, as you indicated, a very accomplished lawyer, legislator, and, in the end, the Republican nominee for the presidency. And in November of 1860, he would become the 16th president of the United States. Now, that is a remarkable achievement. It really is. It seems that what you're describing is that he found his purpose in New Salem, Illinois. What do you think about his life in New Salem helped him discover that purpose? Uh, some of it was inside Lincoln now. Mm -hmm. First of all, Abraham Lincoln is a fellow who truly sought to improve his lot. Uh, he being a floating, a piece of floating driftwood really wasn't good for him. He, he looks at that in some derision. What he wanted was better. He wanted to do better in life. And he found in New Salem a group of people, maybe 25 families, living there, all in log cabins, 
Uh, for those interested in seeing what New Salem looked like, you can visit it today. Um, but he found in those families people who would help him, who were much like him, who came from Lots of them came from southern states, Kentucky being principal among them. And he, of course, was a native Kentuckian. But he found people who were responsive and who were helpful. So when Lincoln wanted to learn grammar, here he is at 22 years of age, actually 23 when he begins this, he asks Mentor Graham, a resident there, Imagine the name Mentor. What an apt name. What an apt name for being <laughs> mm-hmm. the mentor of Abraham Lincoln. But he mm-hmm. asked a man named Mentor Graham if he could help him learn grammar. So uh, Mentor Graham reaches for Kirkwood's book published in the 1820s on grammar. And he and Lincoln study grammar. And when Lincoln then is offered a job as the deputy surveyor for what became Menard County, Illinois, he doesn't know anything about surveying. Yet they liked him and they made him deputy surveyor. So he goes back to Mentor Graham and he asks him, could you help me? What do I do to learn surveying? And Graham shows him texts that he can turn to. And he and Lincoln study the texts. You're you're describing a character who is teachable. Teachable. He's humble. Hungry. He's hungry, too. And he's hungry. And Mm -hmm. he's learning how to learn. Right. Right. And, you know, it's interesting. He he shows up in July 1831 in New Salem, Mm -hmm. this piece of floating driftwood. Mm -hmm. In 1832, he throws his hat in the ring to run for the state legislature in one year. So his skills as a leader are identified by the people in that town. Exactly. Who are some of the people who influenced him there in that short year? Well, there there are lots of them. Um, A man named Jack Kelso. Uh, Jack Kelso lived in in a dog trot log cabin, two log cabins with a with a like a, a a a section in between you could walk through in the open air. It's called a dog trot cabin. Mm-hmm. He lived in a dog trot cabin and he loved to read Robert Burns and Shakespeare. Mm. And so he introduces Lincoln to Shakespeare. Now imagine in a log cabin community in the middle of nowhere in Illinois, you have people who have this sort of mindset. Mm. And so he introduces Lincoln to Shakespeare, introduces him to Robert Burns, which was Kelso's favorite. And so Lincoln learns to read, not only through Mentor Graham, but learns to read through reading the great classics. And this, again, is all happening in this little place that came about in 1828. New Salem only owes its origin to 1828. And here's Lincoln in 1831 showing up there. And by 1832, he's not only studying grammar and studying Shakespeare and Robert Burns, he runs for the legislature. So let's talk about a few of the influential individuals who worked with Lincoln and helped 
him make himself believe he could become a legislator for the state of Illinois? Well, there were um, there were several. Um, one of them is James Rutledge. Uh, the Rutledges of New Salem all came from, as the name would suggest, South Carolina. But they came from South Carolina through Kentucky and then into Indiana and ultimately Illinois. But James Rutledge was the founder of the debating society. Mm -hmm. It had a debating society. Wow. And he allowed Lincoln to have to one, one join the debating society, but then gave him an opportunity to stand up on his feet and offer a, a subject for debate. And Lincoln did so. And James Rutledge's brother, R.B. Rutledge, who was another influence on Lincoln, uh, remembered what Lincoln said that night and was incredibly impressed not with necessarily all the contents, but the performance of Lincoln mm -hmm. and uh, how much he made his points clear, even though he began, as you can imagine, Lincoln was 6'4", had huge hands, big feet, uh, long arms and legs, and he was awkward looking. And soon, according to R.B. Rutledge, they, he lost this idea of this being an awkward man mm -hmm. and began to just listen to his performance. And the performance, he said, was remarkable. Now, just think of this. This is the, the, the driftwood of just a year before. And here he is making this performance in front of a debating society. Now, a lot of it came about because Lincoln found a home here. He was comfortable with these people. I remember the historian Benjamin Thomas, who wrote really one of the best one-volume biographies ever of Lincoln, said that his new Salem years revealed to him the possibility of betterment and gave him some concept of what he could do. That's owed to the people there you're, as well as to himself. You're describing an environment of, of a community of people who related to Abraham Lincoln Absolutely. and tried to bring out his best qualities Absolutely. and show him what he was capable what of. What he was capable of. Mm -hmm. That's really amazing. So he started to run for office in 1832. 1832. Tell us about that campaign. Well, let, the campaign um, begins in April. The election's going to be in the fall. And when he announces his campaign... You can, you can see his platform because he, he, he had it published <laughs> in the newspaper in Springfield, which was a Whig paper. Lincoln chose to become a Whig. And I think the reason he chose to become a Whig is kind of obvious. He's from Kentucky. Mm, and who's the great Whig um, in the United States Senate had been Speaker of the House from Kentucky, but Henry Clay. He became a devotee of Henry Clay. And so what Henry Clay liked, Lincoln liked. Mm -hmm. Henry Clay is a Kentuckian. And as Lincoln would say, I too am a Kentuckian. And so he, he, he publishes this platform 
where he talks about internal improvements. And internal improvements, of course, was Henry Clay's whole reason for elected office. He was the champion, national champion of internal improvements. And Lincoln, in his, in his little published platform, talks about improving the the channeling of the Sangamo River, Sangamon River. He called it the Sangamo River, like the newspaper. And um, that it needed to be deepened and channeled for more barge traffic. And this, this appealed to people because, I mean, they wanted commerce too. Well, this is also what he's familiar with, having just returned <laughs> from working on barges going down to New Orleans well, on barges, correct? Precisely. So, and by the way, in that article he has published mm-hmm. in the Sangamo Journal, he mentions his own experience on barges, pl- uh, uh, flat boats going down the Ohio and the Mississippi River. And New Salem's prosperity is due to its strategic position on the river. And it could be even more, It's he a says. port. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So it's, he's trying to promote right. his own community. Right. Okay. Well, he mentions, of course, this, this famous story of his, that he uh, he was on this flatboat with Denton Offit, among others, and they went down the Sangamon River. And um, as they were going down the Sangamon River, they hit a mill dam. Oh, and the boat got stuck. Flat boat got stuck on it. And it could, they couldn't get it off. And so what they did was they, Lincoln oversaw them emptying the contents of that flat boat, all the cargo. And then he got a drill <laughs> and drilled a hole in that uh, hull. And so, to, so that all the water that had gotten in could be let out, he then uh, emptied that 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 hull, and then pushed it over the mill dam, and then proceeded to plug that hole, and then get the cargo back on board and down the river they went. But you see, it showed that to him then, and he argued this to his his fellow citizens, that this river needs to be improved if we really expect to use it commercially. And who wouldn't disagree with that? But then then comes to me the most important point of all that Lincoln mentions. And it's this. He said, the value of education is something that I want the state legislature to stand for. Because, he says, if people can learn, can learn to read, they can learn the history of their own country and of other countries so as to value the free institutions here, which is what you just quoted. There's the That's witness- where it comes from. That's it. And the witnessing history motto we got from Lincoln's first race for public office. Mm-hmm. And but here's a here's a fellow though who has spent his time not only studying grammar, uh, all that, uh, reading Robert Burns and Shakespeare, but Lincoln loved to study history. He truly loved American history. And he loved to read about the founders of the country. And so here he is with all this love of reading this, 
taking it and making it part of his public persona Mm -hmm. as a candidate for office. Well, and this is about 20 years before public education becomes a rallying cry for politicians. Oh, yes. And Abraham Lincoln is thinking, I didn't have access to a decent education growing up. I've had to do this myself. That's right. But this is something everyone should have access to. It should be available. It should be available. Right. Right. So he's really one of our early... Exponents. Of public education. Of public education. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. It's interesting in that race, though, um, it was suddenly kind of uh, taken off track uh, because uh, war broke out on the Illinois frontier. Oh, gosh. Uh, Chief Black Hawk, (laughs) uh, then living on the other side of the Mississippi River, um, uh, the chief of the Sauk uh, tribes, um, um, moved into Illinois with uh, 500 armed warriors. And to the alarm of everyone between Chicago and Springfield. And so the governor of... Illinois called out the militia, mm-hmm. and uh, they mustered a militia company in New Salem. And um, who was elected captain of the uh, militia company but Lincoln? And you wonder, uh, this is 1832. This is wow. the summer of 18. 18- One year mm-hmm. it has taken him to become a leader. Mm-hmm. And he regarded, even when he was president, that being elected captain of that company was the most satisfying thing that had ever happened to him. That's really his community's acknowledgement of the type of leadership he was capable of. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, that, that militia company uh, was sent up north to uh, potentially combat Black Hawk. They chased him for a little while, never were able to find him. (laughs) There are a couple of humorous things about that mission. One is where Lincoln, who has no knowledge of military uh, drill or anything, uh, had his company come up and they immediately faced a fence that had a gate. (laughs) And he couldn't figure out what the command was to get him to go end in through that gate. And so he he yells to the whole company. He says, everybody disband and run through that gate and we'll collect on the other side. <laughs> so, <laughs> but he, 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 they wind up coming back home in the summer of 1832, and he renews his race for the state legislature. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and the outcome of that race? What? He, he, he lost. Okay. He lost the race. But let me tell you, though, um, there were people who listened to him give a campaign speech or two. Mm-hmm. There was a prominent lawyer and circuit judge in Springfield by the name of Stephen Trigg Logan. Now, let me tell you about Stephen Logan just really briefly. He's another Kentuckian. He's the grandson on his mother's side of Colonel Stephen Trigg, who was one of the commanders at the Battle of Blue Licks and was killed there. On his father's side, he's the grandson of James Logan, 
who was the brother of the famous Benjamin Logan, who settled Logan Station, which is now Stanford, Kentucky. And um, so this man has deep Kentucky roots. And he sees this young kind of gawky fellow uh, giving this speech. And just like R.B. Rutledge, he listens and then finds this man to be not only fascinating to watch and listen to, but he says he's extremely popular where he is. Those are his words. So, again, one year, he's been elected captain of a militia company, and he's now referred to by a main political operative in the Whig Party as being extremely popular where he lives. Now, he lost the election. But in New Salem alone, Lincoln polled 277 of the 300 votes cast. Shows you how popular he was. Mm -hmm. So he's getting onto the radar of the party in Illinois, the Republican Party in Illinois, as early as 1832. Well, not the Republican Party then, the Whig Party. The Whig Party, right. Some of those would become Republicans in the 1850s, but it's the Whig Party. Mm -hmm. And yes, he has gotten on the radar of of the Whig Party. Okay. So after he lost the election, does he go back to New Salem? Well, he's living there. I mean, he never really left New Salem. Okay. He ran as a resident of New Salem for a house district that um, New Salem was a part of. Mm -hmm. So what does he do now? Well, (laughs) this is a rather odd part of his existence there. He is offered a position to um, become a partner in a general store. And he does so uh, by um, uh, buying entirely on credit the interest of one of the partners. His name was Rowan Herndon, another Kentuckian. And so now he becomes partners with William Berry uh, in 1833 in this uh, general store. And... um, it all turned out rather badly, frankly. <laughs> you can almost guess this happening with him. One, he was no storekeeper. This guy has something else in mind in his life than attending a store. But now some of the some of the most wonderful episodes I know that we filmed in this production were of he minding a general store. And Lincoln won the general store, but also be where the um, the post office was. And um, it would also be where all the, uh, all the old fellas would gather, sit around and, you know, drink cider or whatever <laughs> and talk, and where all the newspapers were delivered. And Lincoln, as a storekeeper, became a voracious reader of newspapers. I mean, it was the only way you could get information about the outside world. And so as the newspapers would come in, before he'd give them to those who, to whom they were due, he'd read through all of them. And, and then as all the loafers would come in and sit around, he, he became their source of humor because Lincoln could daggone tell a story that was funny. And he would sit back and just tell stories to these people. Well, this is not a good way to earn a living. 
<laughs> and uh, <laughs> it, it might it might seem fun, but you know, then you wonder, well, where's William Barry in this picture? Well, William Barry is almost non-existent. He was an alcoholic, it turns out, and so he was almost uh, not capable of doing much. Lincoln had to run the store. And when he ran the store, it just became loaded with these guys, and they'd sit and laugh at the stories he'd tell. Well, as you can imagine, the store the store failed, and um, Lincoln uh, was in debt and unemployed. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> as he said, to uh, he was reduced to the elemental of keeping body and soul together. That's how he described his situation. But then there are certain things that happened for him. Uh, these people loved Lincoln. And so knowing he was really kind of down and out, in 1833, he was appointed postmaster of New Salem. Mm -hmm. Well, that didn't give him much money, but gave him something. And so what this guy then does is he hires himself out to people to help help them bring in their crops, plant their crops, uh, do odd jobs, anything. What I love about the guy is he's never too proud to do what it takes to keep himself going and to keep his eye on the prize that he seeks for himself. And so here's this interim where he's just resolved, I'll do whatever. And this is where we get our image of him as the rail splitter. As among, yeah, we'll see. Because he, he's absolutely he's out there splitting, splitting rails. Splitting rails, making firewood, making fence rails. Mm -hmm. uh, because he had really, in Indiana, when he was a young man, and he lived there for 14 years before he moved to Illinois, he had, he had really spent a great deal of time using an axe. And he says it. I mean, he says, I grew up using an axe mm -hmm. to make rails. Mm-hmm. And so, again, he's not too proud to go back down and do what it took, do what it takes to, uh, to make a living. And so he did. And then um, on the heels of this, he's appointed deputy surveyor. And he doesn't know <laughs> anything about surveying. <laughs> so what he does, he calls Mentor Graham again. And Graham shows him a couple of books on the theory and practice of surveying and a book on geometry and trigonometry. And his kid's learning this stuff with him. Graham is a school teacher. And Graham is teaching him how to be a surveyor. And Lincoln has confidence he can acquire these skills. Yes, okay. precisely. So he does that. And does he get to do surveying? I guess he does for end, a short time. He becomes a uh, surveyor. And becomes a very good surveyor. And in fact, uh, the towns of Petersburg, which is in Menard County, and it's the town really that became the town of virtually all the New Salem residents ultimately. Mm -hmm. New Salem basically ceased to exist in the early 1840s. Most of those people had moved to the town of Petersburg. Abraham Lincoln surveyed the town of Petersburg. He surveyed the town of New Boston Albany, and Huron, Illinois, and most of the roads connecting them. Now, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is 1833 and 1834. Mm -hmm. wow. He's now only two and three years into his residency there. So it's remarkable to me, mm -hmm. totally remarkable. 
It's interesting. Uh, after he gets the surveying equipment, he buys a horse, a saddle, and he buys all the surveying instruments, mm-hmm. all on credit. Again, <laughs> on credit. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, what, what, what happens is that uh, uh, you're now in the mid-1830s. And what happens in America? We go into a depression. And a lot of people who are listening to this have had experiences with economic downturns. Lincoln did too. And that is the problem he ran into is that his creditors then wanted all their money. Mm -hmm. And there was no way he could pay it all at one time. Mm -hmm. So uh, what did they do? They sued him. They sued him in the Sangamon Circuit Court in Springfield. And uh, and here's this this shows you the deep affection these people had for him in in New Salem, uh, knowing that if he lost these cases, which he did, and they ordered all this sold that he had bought, he'd have no way to earn a living. Mm-hmm. So after the judgments were rendered against him in the Sangamon Circuit Court. Uh, two of his neighbors went in and bought them themselves to give to Lincoln. Wow. Now, what you, it's just amazing. That is a testimony to the type of person he is. And they are. And they are, too. And they are. You're right. Yeah. That is amazing. Well, you know, in 1834, uh, in April, his name appeared again on the ballot to run for the state legislature. <laughs> so Lincoln, Lincoln's going to try it again. Now, remember, remember this. Lincoln, by being a Whig, even though he appeals to an awful lot of Kentuckians who are living in Illinois and an awful lot of people who ascribe to the Whig a platform, most of the people living out there were Democrats. And the reason they were Democrats was their allegiance to Andrew Jackson. Uh-huh. Okay. Jackson is the hero of the frontier. Yes. And these people, all, not all of them, but many, the majority of them, were Jacksonian Democrats. And you can see why they were. And so he has a couple of strikes against him, just running as a Whig. But here he goes once again in April 1834, throwing his hat in the ring to run for the state legislature. And um, uh, he gives a speech uh, uh, that is attended by a man named John Todd Stewart. Now, that name Todd is interesting. He is the first cousin of Mary Todd, who would become Lincoln's wife. Okay. This is John Todd Stewart, came from Lexington, Kentucky. And he, um, he listened to Lincoln speak. And after it was, he was through... Um, and Todd was a Whig, too. Todd came up to him, introduced himself, and said, have you ever thought of studying law? And Lincoln said, I have. Well, he's just been a defendant in these cases. Well, yeah, he, he'd sure. probably like to know a little more about he probably it. probably <laughs> would. Probably would. And it was, it was Stuart who encouraged him. He says, look at—and Stuart was a prominent lawyer in Springfield— very prominent lawyer, and he encourages Lincoln, who you can imagine what Lincoln would have looked like with suspenders, you know, uh, clothes of some 
you know, front, almost like a frontiersman. Um, and here's this polished lawyer, went to Center College, mm -hmm. uh, Stuart did, telling him, you ought to study law. Mm -hmm. Well, in August 1834, Lincoln was elected to the House of Representatives. And he was elected easily. And it, it was said that even the, uh, the Democrats began to back him purely out of a personal regard for him. Imagine that. Mm. Out of a personal regard, they backed him. So he wins. And in fact, it was people like, man, get this name, another one of the residents of, of New Salem or near New Salem who helped Lincoln, a man named Bowling Green. <laughs> Bowling Green was the head of the local Democrat organization. Mm -hmm. And Green really liked this Lincoln. And so what Green does, he just tells all the Democrats, vote for him. Go vote for him. And they apparently, they apparently did. And once he had won the election, he, um, he turns to uh, John Todd Stewart and says, I will study law. And I, I would love to study it in your office if you can help me. Mm -hmm. And that began another period where John Stewart and his partner, a man named H.E. Dummer, uh, would lend Lincoln books, law books, chitties, work on pleadings, uh, works on evidence, uh, all of those things. And Lincoln would ride into Springfield from New Salem, borrow books, go back home to Springfield. And that's a 20-mile ride. Mm-hmm. And, and it's took a, it's, a day. It's a, absolutely, and he would borrow these books. And he Lincoln apparently, once he started studying, it would just be relentless. He would be just relentless in it. I want to get this mastered. And um, uh, even Dummer said he'd come into the office. He was the most awkward-looking person I ever saw in my life. But once he started talking, he got animated. And he became one of the most interesting people I ever saw. So here he is um, studying, studying law. And, so um, he's gradually acquiring a reputation in Springfield as well uh, yes. as in his local community. He's very, yeah, very uh, perceptive. I mean, that's true. He, he's acquiring a reputation outside of New Salem. Think of the towns he surveyed mm -hmm. out there. Right. And then Springfield, which is your kind the of the capital. metropolis. It's not the capital yet. Okay. But it's a it's a it's a large town mm -hmm. and with a lot of educated people, prominent people, and he's building a reputation there too. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so he's elected in eighteen thirty four and he begins to study law. Right. Right. Now and he's driving back or riding back and forth to Springfield, right. studying. Right. Then what happens? Well, this is a, a an interesting episode. I think everybody has a has heard of this episode, and not everybody, most people have, many people have. And that is, he finds what apparently was his first love in life. When he um, is studying law, he is living. Uh, with the Rutledge family. Remember them, James Rutledge. Yes. And um, he's living in that 
house, which was also kind of a tavern. And I don't use that in a, a in the liquor sense. It was the tavern. People often were boarders there, slept there, because the, the cabin was big enough to accommodate that. Okay. And they provided a room for him. And the, the Rutledges had a daughter named Anne, Anne Rutledge. Uh, she was then 19 years old. Lincoln wasn't too much older than that. And um, she apparently had been betrothed to a man named John McNeil of New York, who had come to New Salem and helped start a general store. Uh, and uh, McNeil suddenly left, claiming he had to go back home to New York. And months passed, and nothing ever became, or the, 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 his, his absence became extended. And then it was discovered that his name was really McNamara, and that he was not at all, uh, had not at all been in love with Anne. And so in the midst of this, Lincoln falls in love with her. And um, they moved, the Rutledges uh, moved to Sand Ridge, which is a little settlement just outside of about seven miles from New Salem. And Lincoln would walk all the way seven miles to visit her. <laughs> and um, then suddenly in the summer of 1835, she became ill. And um, it apparently was a typhoid fever. Mm. And um, in the summer of 1835, she died. And Lincoln was there when that happened. Now, some people have made huge things out of that occurrence in his life. Mm -hmm. But now here is an example. He lost his mother. Mm-hmm. When he was only nine, eight. Right. And um, uh, that was a traumatic thing to have happen. Now, he had a stepmother, ultimately, 14 months later, who he loved very much and who did a great deal for him. But the, the loss of a mother at that age is very, very difficult. And here now is another significant woman in his life who dies. Mm-hmm. And... Um, they say Lincoln reacted um, uh, erratically as a result of it, that it struck him at his viscera. He was broken about it. And um, nevertheless, the people around New Salem rallied around him. And um, he continued with his legislative work and continued to, um, to, study, to study law. And... Um, I always love Lincoln's comments to people about how to be successful in the study of law. Mm-hmm. He uh, said, um, "He said, you know, if you're determined to make a lawyer of yourself, and by the way, this can go to anything. You know, this is not just for lawyers. This is just for anybody who wants to be better. He says, um, get the books, uh, being resolutely determined to do what you want is uh, more, you're more than halfway there. If you just do that, if you're just resolute. Persistent. Persistent. Mm-hmm. Determined. Then you're more than halfway there, he says. Mm-hmm. So get the books, read and study them until you understand them in their principal features. And he says, that's the main thing. And he says, always bear in mind that your own resolution to succeed is more important than any one other thing. 
Well, he's absolutely right. He's absolutely he? right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. So anyone out there who's studying or wants to do something, that's that's the guide. That's mm-hmm. the guide. That's great. Wow. What an amazing character he is. He's an amazing character. So he's served for two years in the legislature. Right. Does he run again? He runs in 1836. Okay. And uh, by gosh, the whole Whig ticket's elected in 1836. And um, Things are changing on the th- frontier. Things are changing on the frontier. I mean, Andrew Jackson's still president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And here it is, the whole Whig ticket in, um, in that legislative uh, district uh, 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 wins, uh, wins election. And um, it's interesting that in this election, that uh, among uh, all those elected Whig candidates from Sangamon County, all of them were more than six feet tall. Wow. What he, was in the water? He was six <laughs> four. <laughs> and they referred to themselves as the Long Nine. And it was that Long Nine that uh, were the ones that agitated for the capital of Illinois to be moved from Vandalia, Illinois, where it has been now up until this time, to Springfield. And so Lincoln becomes part of the group in Sangamon County to try to get the rest of the legislature to agree to move the capital to Springfield. And, of course, they ultimately do. But, you know, in the middle of – right at, well, not in the middle, but right after his election, uh, on September 9. 1836, Lincoln was given what we would now call a license to practice law in the state of Illinois. Think of this, Mm. that from 1834 now to 1836, um, he's he's now a member of the bar. And he's only been in New Salem for five years. That is amazing so this is to think about. It's incredible. It is. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Okay, so in that legislative uh, assembly of 1836, what what was going on in the new capital, let's say, in Springfield? Well, it would, it would still be in Vandalia until the new capital was built. Okay. So it wouldn't be until a succeeding year plus – um, they would stay in Vandalia. And by the way, for those ever driving to central Illinois, Vandalia is south of Springfield. It's right on old U.S. 40, the National mm-hmm. Road. Mm-hmm. That's the reason they put it there mm-hmm. in the first place. Central. And um, the old state capital, at least the one that the, that the folks in Vandalia built for it, Lincoln probably never got to use it. Mm-hmm. But the one that was built, they thought would always be the Capitol, is still standing okay. and can be visited. It's a beautiful little building. But in the midst of their construction of that, the whole thing was moved to Springfield. The, mm-hmm. the, the site of the Capitol was moved. So he was still in Vandalia until that new Capitol would be completed. Okay. So did he move to Springfield when the Capitol was completed? He, when this legislative session ended uh, and he now had been 
made a member of the bar. Uh, John Todd Stewart asked him to become his partner. And so in April 1837, he bid farewell to Little New Salem. You can imagine that parting. Mm. I mean— He'd gotten so close to oh, so yeah. many of the people there. Oh, yeah. But you see, he still has his—it's like this is like his attempts to fly from the nest, finally, mm-hmm. in a real sense, that I want to now go out and really make my way in life, you all having done all you've done for me. And it must have been a sad parting, but he left, uh, rode into Springfield, and he took up lodging in a store— operated by Joshua Speed, who was from Louisville, Kentucky. We've all heard of the Speed Museum. Mm -hmm. The Speed family lived at Farmington, which house is still standing off the Waterson Expressway outside of Louisville. Mm -hmm. That's the home of Joshua Speed. And Speed um, had moved to Illinois like a lot of Kentuckians had, opened a store. Didn't stay long, though. But while he was there, uh, Lincoln got a room in the general store for, from him, rent-free. So <laughs> Maybe yeah. he was doing some legal work. <laughs> I, I trust he probably was. And, 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 and literally on the day, April 15, 1837, when he leaves New Salem, in the Sangamo Journal is printed, and they used to call these the lawyer's cards, and they were the ads on the front page of the newspaper showing <laughs> they're open for business. And this one read, J.T. Stewart and A. Lincoln, attorneys and counselors at law, will practice conjointly in the courts of this judicial circuit. That was on the front page of the Sangamo like Journal. the heavy hitters billboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> not, not quite that, but uh, close. The Times... The analogous yeah, for yeah, the time. Yeah. So now he's John Todd Stewart's law partner. Law partner. This has to be how he met Mary Todd. Well, yes. Yes, indeed. You can you can just see. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you talk a bit about Mary Todd. Um, Mary Todd, um, again, was John Todd Stewart's first cousin. Mm-hmm. Both came from Lexington. She was rather polished, uh, well-educated at Madame Mentel's school here oh, in yes. Lexington. Mm-hmm. Um, she had um, moved to uh, Springfield from Lexington in 1837 to really then visit her sister Elizabeth, who was the wife of a Kentucky native named Ninian Edwards. Ninian Edwards would cut his own path in Illinois history as his father did. Um, also named Ninian Edwards, graduates of Transylvania University. And in 1839, Mary Todd returned to Springfield to live. And so Lincoln is introduced to her in 1837, and then she decided she would return to Springfield and live in 1839. Okay. She has. She's living with her sister, and her cousin is Lincoln's law, law partner. partner. Right. See, it's okay. all. A, it's a great setup. For it her. is. <laughs> I think we know what's next. <laughs> Lincoln had had, by the way, uh, uh, an interim between Anne Rutledge 
and he being introduced to Mary Todd, where he uh, courted a woman named Mary Owens, who also was a Kentuckian, but was a was a heavy uh, uh, woman. Uh, it's, it's funny, uh, Carl Sandburg in his great volumes of the biography of Lincoln, the chapter on Mary Owens is called, quote, in love with a fat girl, end quote. Uh, no. <laughs> and, and, and uh, Carl Sandburg. Carl Sandburg. And, and, you know, and I have seen letters the, the, uh, that Lincoln wrote to her and that she wrote to him when he was in the legislature. And it's so funny. All he does in these letters is complain, complain about what the work he has to do, uh, how he has to live, just complaint after complaint after complaint. And she, she, you can just imagine just being nothing like, oh, how much I miss you. Never heard of that. It's just complaints. And so uh, that courtship ended, as you can see. Okay. And I probably the best for both of them because both of them wanted it over. I and don't that was think it. she was bringing out the best in him. No. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> so Mary Todd was something quite different. Okay. And here's this polished, educated young lady who comes from a rather prominent family and uh, whose cousin is his partner. And hmm. this seems to work, so to speak. He's going to marry up. Right. Okay. And, and they actually plan to get married on the 1st of January in 1841. Mm-hmm. And then Lincoln gets the uh, – what is it? He – he starts getting depressed and despond. He cold feet. Yeah, cold feet. Cold feet. He got cold feet. I think that's the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. Is cold feet. And um, he, uh, she then said, "Well, then release me from the engagement." And he did. But it, it seemed as though they left it open for being renewed. And uh, remember this great letter, John Todd Stewart had gotten elected to Congress as a Whig. And Lincoln writes him a letter. And he says, I'm now the most miserable man living. He says, if what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on earth. Oh, my. <laughs> that is despondency. Oh, but, uh, but nevertheless, <laughs> um, in uh, 1842, um, uh, Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd were married. Okay, so it it all came round okay. It, it, exactly. He has these fits of despondency. Yeah, he does. He doesn't does. he? He does. Mm-hmm. He does. But you know, I'll tell you. Um, I think if anyone who studies the frontier, you see that evident in a lot of people, mm-hmm. and I think it's from just how hard life is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't even think about that anymore today. We, we judge people uh, because we can judge them by our standards. And, uh, you know, if he'd done this, that, and the other, it wouldn't be that way. And that's not so. You know, people reacted in those days be- to things because life was hard. Death was a common visitor. And sickness usually led to death. And so... Well, in the um, case of Ann Rutledge, what a shock. What a shock to him. Well, look at his own mother. Right. She dies of just the milk Mm -hmm. that was was poisoned by the cows eating uh, uh, a weed. weed. Mm 
Mm-hmm. It's random. And, There's a randomness. And not, not only then was was Nancy Hanks Lincoln, did she die? Mm-hmm. But two weeks before that, both her cousins died up there in Indiana of that. Of the same Of thing. the milk sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And no sooner did they bury them than she came down with it. Mm-hmm. So it's... It's rough. Yes, and rough. there's a random quality to the nature of things. Right, right. And right. Rutledge falling ill all of a sudden out of nowhere. And out then of nowhere. in a week, gone. Right, right. It is. It's very shocking. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the two, Mary Todd and Abraham Lincoln, their first quarters uh, was it we're in the Globe Hotel in Springfield. <laughs> and uh, Is that still there? No, it's okay. long gone, long gone. But there were they there were four children born to that family, that mm-hmm. couple. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert Todd, named for Mary's father, uh, was born in 1843 in the when they were in the Globe Hotel. Mm. Then uh, Edward uh, Baker, Lincoln, Named for one of Lincoln's close friends on in the legal business, Edward Baker of of uh, Illinois. Uh, Edward, they called him Eddie Baker, little Eddie. Mm-hmm. Um, he um, he was the second one born, and then Thomas Lincoln was born, and Lincoln Abraham Lincoln nicknamed him uh, Tad. And he says, I, when when asked why you named him Tab, Tad, it's, he said, it's because when he was born, he looked like a tadpole. <laughs> so there was Tad Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And uh, sadly, uh, and then there was William Wallace Lincoln. And little Eddie died at the age of four, probably of tuberculosis. And as we know, William Wallace died in the White House. Mm-hmm. Tad died right after the war. The only one who would survive would be Robert, mm. the oldest. And you speak more of tragedy. you speak of more of mm-hmm. that tragedy, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, Lincoln and Mary Todd ended up settling in Springfield, right? Not right. far from the. From the Capitol. No, not far from the Capitol or from his offices. In the um, courthouse. At the corner of 8th and Jackson Streets in Springfield, and the house is still standing today. Mm-hmm. When they bought it. it, it was a one-and-a-half-story house. And then over the years, uh, by 1855, they increased it to two-and-a-half stories. And it's a clabbered house, a very pretty place. Um, uh, they occupied all the way up until he was elected president of the United States. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So what was his law practice like in Springfield? Well, he Springfield was one of the counties, 14 of them, in the 8th Judicial Circuit. Mm-hmm. And back then, uh, lawyers today would never believe this. <laughs> uh, I was one for 44, almost 45 years. Uh, and um, uh, this, is, this is how they practice law then. Their offices were in in Springfield. But every fall and every spring, the lawyers rode a circuit. This was the Eighth Judicial Circuit. And these lawyers rode from county to county. Uh, there were 14 counties. To go from county to county over the 14 counties was a 500-mile journey. Mm. 
Now, they wouldn't do it, of course, in one fell swoop. They would go from Springfield North to um, Tremont, where that would be the first county they would hit. And there, uh, they would meet all the folks who wanted to bring lawsuits. <laughs> this is where court day is. This is where court day comes, comes from. from. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this the, the, the Illinois setup, and frankly, Illinois' laws were modeled after Kentucky's. And, in fact, half the counties in Illinois are named for Kentucky mm-hmm. counties mm-hmm. and Kentucky heroes. Mm-hmm. But they would go and they would, they would meet all the clients, put prospective clients out on the lawn, They'd talk about their cases, and those guys would then go and write the pleadings right there, file them, and the next day they'd be trying them. <laughs> Sounds like a pretty efficient system, yeah. <laughs> all things That is, if they, could, if they could serve the defendant, they'd be trying them the next day. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, so you once the, once the lawyers arrive, the, I'm sure the sheriffs and their deputies were very busy, you know, mm-hmm. pr- serving process. But that's how they would do this in every one of those counties. So how long did that take to go the 500 miles over 14 counties trying cases in every one of those counties? They go all the way to the Indiana border and then all the way back. And, um, I mean, it would take three and a half, four months. They'd be away. So the lawyers went to the cases. They went to the cases. The cases didn't come to them. No. Wow. So he— was clearly riding horses with a group of lawyers and— <laughs> And the judge. And the judge. And the judge. Here comes the judge. That's right. And, and from uh, uh, 1848 until 1860, the circuit judge of the Eighth Judicial Circuit was a man named David Davis, mm-hmm. who was educated at Kenyon College up in Gambier, Ohio, and then moved to Illinois, uh, became a member of the bar— met Lincoln in the state legislature. Lincoln regarded his time as a member of the House of Representatives in Illinois as one of the most productive times of his life. And if that wasn't one of the most productive times in his life, writing the Eighth Judicial Circuit was. Mm -hmm. Because there he got to see so many people, and so many people saw him, Mm. And so many people sized him up and listened to him in the courtrooms Mm -hmm. that um, if you want to see a guy who has built a base. There it is. There it is. Mm -hmm. There it is. And he's a remarkable looking person. He is. Tall and slender. You don't forget him. He was mm-hmm. the type of guy. Memorable. Right. I mean, he, as he, he regarded, he never thought he had a pretty face. <laughs> <laughs> and someone accused that him. That would of, be right. <laughs> some of them, some of, one, one fellow he used to say accused him of being two-faced. And he says, if I was two-faced, would I be wearing this one? <laughs> <laughs> typical humor of his. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, but the point about it is, even though he wasn't pretty to look at, <laughs> he was unforgettable. Mm-hmm. Um, even if he said nothing. So yeah. now you can see name recognition and you can see how people in Illinois got to know got him. Got to know him. That's right. And and he he practiced in that circuit literally from 1837 all the way until he was elected president in 1860. Okay. Wow. And he, he, he could 
hold a seat in the legislature and practice oh, law. Oh, they sure they, was, they all did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's and the legislative terms were always keyed to be uh, so that you wouldn't run afoul of the of the judicial circuit business, <laughs> <laughs> or at least they tried to. No. Oh. Well, so let's see. So we're we're going around the judicial circuit with with. Um, Lincoln, and he did this 1848 to 1860 and maintained his spot in the legislature 18, that whole time? 1837 okay. to 1860. And, okay. And, and well, he didn't make it, maintain his position in the state legislature for the whole time. Okay. But he did. He was reelected in 1840. Um, and then um, he, and, and I might add, might put in here as well, he went to, he formed two other law partnerships. Okay. He left um, uh, John Todd Stewart um, uh, shortly after he was he was um, uh, married, and formed a partnership with um, Stephen Trigg Logan, another Kentuckian. We talked about him before. That's right. The guy who first viewed him uh, arguing for his cause in um, when he ran for the state legislature, mm-hmm. and um, uh, in eighteen thirty two when. Trig, uh, when, when Logan saw him. And um, by 1844, he ended that partnership and formed another with a man named, much younger than him, brand new license licensee uh, as, a, as a law practitioner in Illinois named William uh, H. Herndon. And Herndon would then become his partner all the way up until he was elected president in 1860. Mm-hmm. And um, Herndon cut his teeth as a lawyer practicing under Lincoln, just like Lincoln cut his teeth uh, with John Stewart mm-hmm. and then with Stephen Trigg, a Logan. And um, uh, but but Lincoln, you can tell Lincoln doesn't want to be somebody's somebody. He wants to do it himself. He wants to go out on his own. Mm-hmm. He wants to be a lawyer himself, and then he gets some guy to come in and help him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you see this drive in him always mm-hmm. to be better and right. better. And um, um, so he does that, and Herndon becomes his partner. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing him become a very skilled lawyer. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. And... Um, the, the next most momentous thing in, um, in his life is um, Lincoln's election um, to uh, Congress. And um, he's elected uh, – he, he gets interested in um, running for Congress. Um, but there are two people who he sees as his competitors for that. The first one is his dear friend, uh, Edward Baker, who is the congressman at the time. This is 1846. So he's running against him. And he – well, the question is should he run against Mm, him? And Lincoln doesn't want to run against him. Mm -hmm. He is a great friend of of Baker's. Mm -hmm. And the other one who um, is interested in running is John J. Hardin, who's a lawyer in Jacksonville, Illinois. Hardin is a Kentuckian. I mean, a name Hardin. We got Hardin Hardin County. County. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. John Hardin is a prominent Kentuckian. And um, he 
has expressed an interest in running for the Whig nomination. But then suddenly, uh, Baker decides not to run. And then uh, that would leave Lincoln confronting Hardin. And where Lincoln was interested in confronting Hardin, Hardin then stepped aside. Mm -hmm. And here's what, what really happened with those two. The United States is, is, is right now on the brink, or actually involved, in a war with Mexico. Now, on the frontier, the Mexican War was a very popular war. And states like Kentucky and Illinois and Tennessee, I mean, they over-volunteered. It's mm -hmm. amazing. You go around Kentucky and cemeteries around here, and you can see monuments to the Mexican War, mm -hmm. the, the ones who were lost in the Mexican War from that county. And it was also true of Illinois. These are all Kentuckians in Illinois. Mm -hmm. And both Edward Baker and John J. Hardin became regimental commanders oh. of Illinois regiments. So they in saw the advancement in the Absolutely. military. In the military. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, always led to something good in politics. Mm -hmm. And so Lincoln stepped in when they stepped out. I see. And he ran, and interestingly, he ran against Peter Cartwright, who is that firebrand Methodist preacher. He had known him in his New Salem days. Oh, he gosh. didn't, uh, Peter Cartwright didn't live in New Salem, but he visited there. He held he churches a, there, so to speak. A circuit riding yeah, he was a preacher. circuit riding. Mm -hmm. And Lincoln had known him from his early days in New Salem. And ultimately, um, Lincoln defeated him. Okay. So Lincoln is elected to Congress, uh, which uh, convenes in December 1846. And um, uh, by then, both uh, Edward Baker and John Hardin uh, were commanders of Illinois troops. And um, uh, incredibly, uh, John Hardin was killed at the Battle of Buena Vista um, in February 1847. And that's the same battle Henry Clay loses his oldest son, Henry mm. Clay Jr., who was a colonel mm. of a Kentucky regiment. In the, um, in the Mexican War, they were there uh, fighting with Zachary Taylor, under Zachary Taylor. Mm -hmm. And um, so, uh, but, but here's, the, here's, the, here's the interesting thing. You know, Clay loses a son in the Mexican War. Lincoln, um, he is not so sure that this war is correct, that this was justified. And so... Um, uh, he, the, the President Polk, um, uh, introduces a, um, uh, 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 a, 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 not a resolution, it's a, um, a message, sent a message to the Congress mm -hmm. stating that um, uh, Mexico had started the war by shedding the blood of Americans on American soil. Mm. And Lincoln uh, wasn't so sure about that. Mm -hmm. And so a resolution was introduced um, uh, by Polk so that the Congress would declare this conflict just and necessary. Well, Lincoln and his fellow Whigs got that resolution defeated. And then Lincoln drafts in his own hand 
resolutions of his own that he introduces, asking the president to show the spot where American blood was shed in the United States by the Mexicans. Mm. These were called the spot resolutions. And Lincoln's opponents, the Democrats, all claimed that Lincoln is going to die politically from spotted fever. (laughs) 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 And... um, uh, and frankly, after his term was over uh, in Congress, Lincoln realized that he could not be reelected mm. because so, of what he did. Okay. Because I remember the, the war was very popular. Yeah. And he introducing this aggravated people. Mm-hmm. And um, so he comes back to Springfield and he decides – He's not going to run, and probably his um, political career is done. Okay, so this is 1848. Okay. Right, right. So uh, what happens next with Lincoln Mm -hmm. is um, as a result of the Mexican War, the United States acquires, you know, all the territory of New Mexico, which includes the states, presently the states of uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Nevada, some of Colorado, and all of California. Mm. And um, that creates a problem. Mm -hmm. Creates a problem because what states come in as slave states and what states come in as free states. Mm -hmm. We forget that in the background of all of this history is this struggle Mm. between slave states and free states. Henry Clay had thought he had resolved it in 1820 when when Missouri and Maine petitioned to come in. Mm -hmm. And he, as a result of the Compromise of 1820, the Missouri Compromise, they let Missouri come in as a slave state, Maine as a free state. And then they drew a line along the southern border of Missouri, 3630 parallel, all the way to the Pacific, which cut. California in half, what would become California in half. And they said, above that line, all those territories will be free states and below it will be slave states. Mm. Okay? So here you go. You've now got these new states that have come in. Most of them are south of the Missouri Compromise line. California is split in half. Mm -hmm. So how do we let them in? Well, Henry Clay... Fashions another compromise. He steps up, doesn't he? he? Yeah, absolutely. And he lets California, as a result of this compromise, come in as a free state. Those below the old Missouri compromise line, uh, they can petition to come in based upon their own popular sovereignty. Let the states decide for themselves whether they want to come in or not. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, and then it. There was some some reparations for Texas for giving up some some lands, and uh, but uh, what that what that did did with it was was again put a put a, a band aid over a really serious open wound, mm-hmm. and um, uh, it really became evident in 1854, and this is when. Um, um, we see Stephen A. Douglas 
enter the picture, not the first time in Lincoln's life, but uh, in a serious way into Lincoln's life. Stephen Douglas uh, is a United States senator from uh, Democrat from Illinois, and um, he is a great proponent of a of a railroad line that could run from Chicago to the Pacific Coast. Mm-hmm. And there were other proposals for a transcontinental railroad that um, took a more took a different route than what Stephen Douglas has proposed. And people wonder whether Douglas may have been an investor in this. But what he did in order to get from Chicago uh, through to uh, the Pacific, uh, he had to do something about the states of what would become uh, Kansas and Nebraska. And those states technically were above the Missouri Compromise Line. Mm-hmm. They should be free they states. They should be free. Mm-hmm. What Douglas did as chairman of the Committee on the Territory, he's in the Senate, mm-hmm. was that he got them to agree to let those two territories decide for themselves whether they wanted to be slave or free. Mm. And so with this, people from the South poured into those states. People from the North poured into those states. And, you know, it, it, it frankly caused an outright war within mm. those two states, mm. bleeding Kansas. Bleeding Kansas, yeah. And uh, Lincoln, when he saw this, became rather alarmed. Now, he remembered Douglas from the House, his years in the House of Representatives. The two knew one another, and um, mm-hmm. um, they were uh, political opponents, but were, were, were friendly to one another. And when Lincoln saw this thing uh, appear, he became seriously alarmed mm-hmm. and decided then and there he would get back into politics. And he would do it literally as, the, as an opponent of Kansas, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. This is again in 1854. And okay. what, what Lincoln does is he tries to find what is the best argument I can use. I'm offended by it, he says, but how can I tell others that they should be too? Okay. Now, he's remind. got to remind the listeners, Lincoln mm-hmm. is not here studying how do we get rid of slavery where it exists. Right. Lincoln's the type who says to people, we can't do anything where it already exists. And he says, we shouldn't castigate those people there because if we were living there, we would think the same as they do. Mm. But we So he's not an abolitionist. No, he's not. And he tries mm-hmm. to be very clear about it, that he's mm-hmm. not. But mm-hmm. what he does say is that is there not something I can show the people that the founders of this country wanted to see that institution ultimately extinguished? And after he reads, remembers things like the Declaration of Independence. There's nothing in the Constitution he can point to that helps him much on this. Mm -hmm. But there is a creed set forth in the Declaration of Independence. And it's the creed that it, it, it's, I mean, it literally says 
that all men are created equal. And he says, is that not? And it was passed unanimously by the Second Continental Congress. So if that's so, were not the founders interested in seeing this ultimately extinguished? And of course, the answer to that is yes. yes. Mm-hmm. So here's Lincoln taking a document that right now in 1854 is just a relic of the revolution. No one's talking about it. People didn't talk about it much. Mm -hmm. They celebrated the 4th of July, but they didn't care much about what the document said. Mm -hmm. And here he is dragging this document back up and saying, look what it It, says. He's studying. And, you know, he'll say later that from that point forward, I never had a feeling politically that didn't spring from the sentiments of the Declaration of Independence. Ever. That's powerful. It's powerful. Mm-hmm. What I love about this story of him is that in this day and age where people try to denigrate the founders and, and the, our organic, mm-hmm. our, our mm-hmm. Fun, fundamental documents, mm-hmm. here's a man who uh, takes one. Mm-hmm. And you know, most people use the Constitution. We're constitutionalists. This guy uses the Declaration of Independence, which doesn't set forth any laws. What it does is just explain why we're separating ourselves from Great Britain. Mm-hmm. It's our vision. Yeah, it's, it, our... it's a creed. Mm-hmm. It becomes a creed. And he takes this creed that's in this declaration, and he says, I'll use it because it tells it all. It was a unanimous declaration, so why shouldn't I? So he begins making speeches on the fact that the framers— uh, wanted to put slavery on its course of ultimate extinction, and for them to allow slavery to even be considered in Kansas and Nebraska, north of the north of the thirty six thirty parallel, but anywhere. But think about north of the thirty six thirty parallel. If they would even allow that, does that not violate what the framers had in mind? And he kept telling everybody, "Let's let's turn ourselves back." to the founders of this country. Let's go back to what they said. Mm. And, I mean, his, his speeches became powerful. And he began going over the, all over the, the old 7th Congressional District where he lived, giving talks against Kansas, Nebraska, uh, because he opposed the expansion of slavery. How can we let it get extinguished if they keep expanding it? And people found his arguments compelling. 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 So much so that in the summer of 1854, um, here comes Stephen Douglas. He comes back to Chicago, where he comes from, Mm -hmm. actually born in Vermont and lived in New York as a young man and then moved to Illinois. But he lived in Chicago, and that was his political base. He comes back. I mean, and and 8,000 people show up in the streets of Chicago welcoming him. This guy has some influence now, Mm. serious influence. And Lincoln um, decides he's going to take him on. And so we come to the state fair in October 1854. And Douglas is scheduled to speak. um, And Lincoln has tried to debate him. And Douglas won't even think of doing that with him. Mm. He's he's a nobody. Mm. Uh, he He doesn't have any office, doesn't have anything. Mm-hmm. He's just a spokesperson for this uh, this anti uh, um, uh, a bill a bill against my uh, 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 the movement against my bill, mm-hmm. and so um, anyway, he's scheduled to speak at the state fair, and of course it's pouring rain, 
So they go into the new state capitol. And in the, in the chamber of the House of Representatives, uh, Douglas gives his speech um, in favor of Kansas, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And um, it's interesting. It, this is at a time now when the Whig Party is in flux. There's a new Republican Party that has been created in Wisconsin. And there was an attempt to make it to open up that in Illinois, but it kind of failed. So Douglas now gets up there and he's, he argues in favor of Kansas, Nebraska, but then says, and what about these Whigs? Hmm. They now call themselves Republicans. <laughs> and he says, no honest people have any, no honest person would change their name. And the crowd begins to chant, shame on them. It's just like you hear oh. it in crowds today. <laughs> shame on them. They begin to beat, shame on them. Okay. Well, Lincoln, <laughs> Lincoln uh, stands up the next day in the same chamber, and he replies to Lincoln in a— To Douglas. I mean, to, to, to Douglas. I mean, and it is a— powerful speech talking about this this declared indifference to the moral problem of slavery. Mm. And it's not as though it's not even indifferent. They're agitating in favor of the, mm. this, this thing that should be objectionable. And there's where he first says that uh, this violates the very fundamental principles of liberty and what Douglas is doing is criticizing the Declaration of Independence um, and uh, by insisting there's no moral, no right principle of this, of, of anything but self-interest. I mean, it's just a powerful speech. And um, uh, that really starts Lincoln's resurgence into the— uh, political arena. And you know his his expertise as a debater, think about it. It it has its roots in the debating society in, in, New, Salem, in New Salem that he was invited to join by James Rutledge. Yes, right. And so that decision, you know, for him to say for them right. to offer that to him right. for him to say yes, it led to this moment That's in history. Right. That's right. Where he could stand up to this colorful Right. Right. Stephen Douglas That's and right. say, I've got a better argument. That's right. It is incredible. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, he tried to run for the United States Senate um, in 1855 and just narrowly lost in what was the primary. And back then they elected senators. Now the House and Senate of the state elected the state senators. The legislature did. Uh-huh. And not the people. That wouldn't come until well after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. But he narrowly lost that. And in fact, he encouraged his his members in the House not to vote for him anymore, but to vote for Lyman Trumbull, who he was a, who was a friend of Lincoln's, who ultimately got the nomination. Mm-hmm. Lincoln saying, listen, I don't want to let my own personal thing uh, interfere here. Right. Um, I don't think I'm going to win this. So just let's let's call it off. And uh, and and they did. Um, but um, uh, so Lincoln now is considered a serious um, um, potential among the old Whigs who are slowly becoming Republicans. And um, 
in a convention in Bloomington, um, um, uh, Illinois. Um, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, Lincoln attended this Republican convention, and um, uh, he delivered a speech at that convention castigating Douglas and those supporting the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And um, uh, Lincoln now becomes a dominant member of the, um, of the Republican Party of Illinois. And this sets up the stage where in 1858, Lincoln gets the nomination, becomes the unanimous choice of the Republican Party of Illinois to run for the United States Senate now against Stephen Douglas. Mm. And um, in the summer of 1858, Lincoln calls Douglas to debate him. And Douglas sends him a letter in July 1858 offering he didn't want to debate him, but he felt he had to. <laughs> and he offers uh, seven different sites around the state of Illinois, except he left out Chicago and Springfield. He didn't want to debate where they were both powerful. <laughs> and they would debate in the other congressional districts. And so these two uh, go around the state, literally all around the state, and they um, uh, in debates. And these debates were all the same thing as this fight over the expansion of slavery. And Lincoln, as a result of those, that, that, that race, um, truly becomes one of the great exponents in America of restricting the expansion of slavery. He loses the race, wins the popular vote, but loses the race in the mm -hmm. state legislature, mm -hmm. and very narrowly. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Douglas, going into this, knew Lincoln would be a problem. Mm -hmm. He would be a formidable candidate. And after that defeat, uh, Lincoln now starts getting invitations from all over the country to speak. And he finally accepts one in New York City. And um, this, uh, this offer to, uh, to, uh, to speak... Um, was given by a um, uh, Henry Ward Beecher, the famous minister. And um, uh, in February 1860, mm. Lincoln goes to New York City. And instead of speaking in Henry Ward Beecher's church in Brooklyn, Lincoln speaks at Cooper Union in New York City, in lower Manhattan. Mm. And uh, February 26th. And the Young Men's Central Republican Union of New York City has taken over the whole operation from Henry Ward Beecher. Oh, that's why it wasn't at the church. Yeah, he, yeah. Has, he has now become a thing mm -hmm. among Republicans, even in the city of New York. Mm -hmm. And so Lincoln gives this speech. Once again, to prepare for this speech, Lincoln goes to the books. And he studies uh, the, the, the ordinance of 1798 um, and, and uh, 1789. This, this ordinance is, is passed by the first Congress, signed by President George Washington. And in this ordinance, what, is it, what does it do? It restricts slavery in the, in the territory that would become the states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and Michigan. 
It's the Northwest Ordinance. Yes. And in this ordinance, um, Lincoln finds that among those who voted for it in that Congress, nearly 30 of them were members of the federal convention that drafted the Constitution. Mm. And they voted yes on that. Mm. And who signs it but George Washington, agreeing to restrict slavery? Mm-hmm. So, he, so he, he argues, so were the founders in favor of restricting slavery? And, of course, the crowd went nuts, went wild in New York. And there's an example of a guy going back to the books like he had done to well, study grammar, to study surveying, to study law, to study everything. Well, it's a case history in legislative history. It's, he uses legislative history to make his argument. Which is what good lawyers do, good, great right. lawyers do. We right. all know right. that technique. It's an amazing application yes. of that to have dug up how the signers of the Constitution, right. he determined how they would have voted right. today right. looking at the legislative history of so. That document. It's amazing. Exactly. So yeah. Cooper Union's on the 26th of February, 1860. On In May 1860, what happens? Lincoln is named the unanimous candidate for the United States for, 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 the, for the presidency um, among all the congressional districts of and all the counties of Illinois. Republican. These are Republicans now. Of all the counties in Illinois, their Republican uh, members all agreed he should be the unanimous choice to be uh, the nominee for the presidency. And here's the fun thing, and we can bring this to an end on this. Uh, the, The convention for the Republican nomination in 1860 is held in Chicago. This had been kind of worked out after Cooper Union by some of Lincoln's operatives. And showing up at this convention in support of Lincoln is, among others, Judge David Davis, mm-hmm. Orville Hickman Browning, mm-hmm. who came from Cynthiana, Kentucky, a host uh, of, of characters who had been attracted to Lincoln on the, on the judicial circuit, who had followed him in all of his doings, all now gathered together as the delegation from Illinois. And the convention, they got worked out to be held in Chicago. And it really the whole central Republican Party nationally agreed to do it because Lincoln would probably be the nominee. Mm-hmm. There's a strong shot he could be if we held it in Chicago. So they hold it in Chicago. And um, even though there are like seven other candidates or nominees to be, to be the, the Republican uh, uh, ultimate nominee, Lincoln, on the third ballot, after the Ohio delegation changed four of its votes from Salmon P. Chase to Lincoln, becomes the Republican nominee for the presidency of the United States. And in November 1860, he wins the election. It's just an incredible story. That story just, it really gives me the goosebumps. It does. It does. It does me too. Never has ceased. Mm-hmm. There's wow. There's something remarkable about it. It really is. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Kent, for meeting with us today. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Thank you very much. 
Become an American hero who participates in our mission by joining us at witnessinghistory.org. Download our documentaries and free teacher education materials that conform to grade level education standards at pbslearning.org. Follow Witnessing History on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.